Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5, Episode 13, The Song Remains the Same. Let's get this show on the road. Another time travel episode. I know, my favorite. <laughs> time travel, it usually means learning more about like John and Mary. So that's pretty cool. But really, I don't really care about John. Generally, this episode was interesting. It just feels like a cop-out episode. Oh, you didn't like it. Well, okay, so this episode is super foundational. There's going to be a lot of stuff in the long game there. Just, you know, putting it out there right away. And as a sidebar... I'm finding it really fascinating to like deep dive into these time travel episodes at the same time as like the first season of the Winchesters is airing. And like for full disclosure, I don't watch the Winchesters. I can eventually talk about the reason why, but like for now, I don't watch it. Like you, I'm not following it. I feel like as someone who's not seen the whole of Supernatural, it's not worth it for me yet. It's a show that I will most likely eventually watch just not this second. For now, though, are we ready for our recap? Count me down. Three, two, one, go. Hooray, Anna's back. Someone's excited for that, I'm sure. Not me. She's, you know, I need to see the brothers. Oops, I just need to see Sam so I can murder him because it's the only way to do this. And I don't know if this is because the angels are making me or because she's actually got her own agenda now. And then she's like, well, if I can't kill them, I'll kill their parents before they're born. Time travel time. And then Cass brings the boys back in time to see their parents again, or Sam first time Dean again. And we have a showdown between Marion and Angel. And Anna, I think, gets killed. I'm not sure with Angels if that really counts as a death. We see Ariel again, who just gets like shushed. Michael shows up and possesses John because it's a bloodline thing. And then memories are wiped. The boys come back to the present. Status quo is done, but we learned some stuff. Oh, we did learn some stuff indeed. It's almost like exposition. It's like a char- it's like the it's like the show telling us a bunch of stuff, but the characters don't necessarily grow as much as they could. While Sam and Dean do get to grow, Mary and Dean, uh, Mary and Dean, Mary and John have moments. But because it is one of those magic voodoo mumbo jumbos, woo, all your memories are gone because reasons, because we need to write a story, it sort of feels like cheap. We have to keep in mind that in the supernatural universe, you can't really go back and change the past. So far, every time that somebody has tried to do that, it's never worked. And so, you know, no matter what happens, you cannot change what happened in the past or so far anyway, maybe by the time this comes out, the Winchesters will have proven me wrong, but like in the supernatural universe to this date, November 22nd, 2022, you cannot change the past. Yeah. Which again, I think raises a whole bunch of questions about like how time travel in this universe works, which I think is more of the annoying stuff that I'm just like nitpicky about. I don't think it's nitpicky at all. I think it's very important to understand how this stuff works because otherwise it falls apart. And that's kind of why like, I don't love time travel in general. So like you said, Anna is back and she says that she's been in heaven prison, whatever that is. We don't know what it is yet. 
where she's been tortured. And I think that this is the first time that we actually hear about heaven prison being a thing. We also find out that Cass has some experience with it. Cass was obviously held against his will and had to get away. Or he kind of, you know, like became their loyal puppet again until he decided no Dean better than God and turned on them again. I guess I didn't think about like what they were doing other than just holding him against his will until they like convinced him to stay. And I guess we now know it was a little bit more. Or we assume it's more. We will learn about that in graphic detail uh, in later seasons. Oh, exciting. Speaking of graphic, Anna dies in a really graphic way. Uh, I know I'm skipping a bunch of stuff, but I sort of want to close the Anna chapter here. This is not how angels usually die, even when, like, they are... I'm not sure if it's... Is it smitten? <laughs> I've always read it as smitten, so I'm going to say smitten. When when somebody smites them, let's put it that way. So this was, like, very graphic compared to, like, what usually happens to them. I assumed she was gone. I assumed this was Anna's death. At the very beginning, when Dean says Cass did a thing, he's like holding his ribs because that's where Cass carved like the Enochian to make uh, him and Sam unfindable to other angels. But I just wanted to mention that it really looks like he's holding his heart. Aww. I know. <laughs> like, I, Aww. That's cute. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, oh, I love that. It's like Cass did a thing and he's like holding his heart. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> it hurts. In this episode, Dean is 31 and Sam is 27 and Mary and John are both 24. Although I think technically Mary might still be 23 because her birthday is in December. But like, you get my point. At this point, the brothers are older than their parents. Didn't even think about that. Like, it didn't even occur to me to like consider their age. And like, I don't think it changes anything, but it does feel funny that like, they're seeing their parents, albeit younger, but literally younger. It's notable for me because, like, especially for Dean for so long, he's had to take care of, like, at least John. To see both his parents younger and more exposed to, you know, this particular sort of danger that's happening to them. Again, he has to step in and protect them. I, I, I follow you. I follow you. Uh, we find out that Mary is pregnant, presumably with Dean, in this episode. And we also find out that when he was a baby, she used to tell him that angels are watching over him. And because I am who I am, I'm obviously going to link this back up to our discussion about the angel Lila in uh, 112 Faith, who watches over a soul that she has chosen from the moment the baby enters the world, through its life and all the way to its death. In an episode where like, he's holding his heart saying, Cass did a thing, just saying. Okay. Remember when we talked about vessels being about like blood and bloodlines? Yep. And it raised some questions for me. And I guess this kind of answers them now. Well, there you go. So we find out that John said yes to being possessed by the Archangel Michael. And as Dean's father, he also has the bloodline that allows him to be a vessel, basically. So then my question, my question, my next question is, would that mean that John could be a vessel for Lucifer? Well, does that mean that Sam could be a vessel for Michael? Or that Dean could be for Lucifer? <laughs> we can't stop and think too much about the metaphysics of the show, Drew. <laughs> but seriously, on a, on a bit of a more serious note, if I were to seriously engage with 
this, I would say that because of the demon blood that he has in him from when he was a baby, perhaps that makes it no longer possible for Sam. Yeah, that seems like a plausible point. And even like why Lucifer needs Sam and not someone else, like they had to prepare the vessel. They had to basically taint it in a way to make it Lucifer proof. Lucifer friendly, I suppose. But then I guess also my other question is Michael makes it clear that though he could possess John, Dean is his end game. Yes, exactly. My interpretation or my interpolation is then that there's something special in Mary's bloodline as well, that when the two come together, it's even better? Maybe we'll learn about that later. Are Mary and John peanut butter and chocolate and Dean is the perfect Reese's cup? I don't know how to answer that, Drew. Dean's a peanut butter cup. Hashtag it. Let's let's keep that in mind for the next few episodes that we're going to be watching. We get our very first mention of Team Free Will, and that's basically going to stick both on the show and in the fandom. Yeah, I feel like I've heard this name Team Free Will before. Like I feel like just I think just it's come up in social media before that I've always sort of attributed to them. So it's like it's weird to have that point of like, oh, this is the first time we're hearing it in the show. And it isn't just like a fan name I've been hearing. But it does make sense, given that the show really seems to be coming down. I don't know if it'll remain this way until the end of the series or if it's really a like shorter arc. But the arc we're on right now is very much this free will versus fate. The angels, at least, seem to be very much on the line of, and even I guess Lucifer by that extent, although technically one of the angels as well, have this very like, nope, everything's going to go a certain way. It's already written. We already know how it's going to go. You can't change it. And then... Sam, Dean, and Cass are very much the, no, 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 we're going to write our own story. Screw you. You remember when Cass said, you know, we're making it up as we go. We're, we're basically exploring that theme through every possible facet uh, that's available to the writers on this show. And this is one of them, like the time travel to try to change things and then not being able to and instead making it like a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's also what I'm kind of curious about. And I feel like depending on how it's written, I could see it being kind of a cop out where if we find out that, yes, fate technically exists, but it's very loose in the way things are like dictated. So, you know, Sam saying yes, being possessed by Lucifer might also interpolate as uh, doing that just to trick him in some way and ultimately defeat him. Like, yes, so in the end, he still did what fate said he was going to do, but not the way you expected it. Which, again, like, if written well, which is a big ask for the show, unfortunately, can be really cool. On the bright side, I guess, we're actually getting closer and closer to the season finale. Uh, so we should find out shortly. I also want to highlight the exchange between Sam and Dean at the end when Sam basically says that like he's worried about them eventually saying yes to the Archangels because he's been weak before and Michael got John to say yes. And uh, Dean replies that it's different because, you know, he did it to save Mary. And Sam replies, well, what about you? Wouldn't you say yes if you could save mom? And like, like it just, it touches back to basically Mary making the deal to save John, John making the deal to save Dean, Dean making the deal to save Sam. And like here we basically have John making a deal to save Mary. You've made up your mind whether to follow fate or, you know, free will, but 
ultimately there are kind of these situations that you could wind up in where you could feasibly see yourself saying yes to a thing you wouldn't have otherwise said. I think up until now, the examples we gave here with Mary and John more specifically, none of them knew there was like a predefined destiny that they did or didn't have to do those things and that they were making a choice for or against free will. Sam and Dean know the choice that they are supposed to make. But again, I think Sam put it really well there is like in the right circumstances, there could be reason to say yes. And I think that this is really the crux of like this season. It's like what's and and even the seasons before, because I remember us having this discussion, like what what circumstances would it take for you to do something that you swore you would never do? That is, I think, also the other major point we're seeing here is the, yes, you have free will, and yes, there are these predefined destinies we're giving you, but again, how far can you be pushed before you swing the other way because ultimately it's the better decision, even if it does mean going against your morals and doing the thing you said you would never do? Mm-hmm. Like, where is your breaking point, essentially? All right. Well, let's head on over to story time to begin the analysis of this heavy episode. So today our theme is omission. It comes from the Latin omitere, uh, which means to let go or to let down. So to omit something can mean either to leave something out on purpose or by accident, or to fail one's duty to do or to include something. And there's like a fine line here, and I'm kind of wondering what we're going to link to a mission in this episode. It, it requires that like reverse thinking. It's like we spend so much time thinking about the actions that everyone takes and the result of those actions. So to now look at everyone through a lens of what aren't they doing? What aren't they saying? And what are we learning because of it? Or reverse, what do these actions tell us that isn't on the surface? Like what are we not seeing or hearing that we should be? Do we want to start with Cass this week? Just because like he's mostly at the beginning. <laughs> Do it, do it, do it. Cast time, yay. Okay. So I I really want to start by highlighting a couple of things when it comes to cast in this episode, because they're all throwaway lines and implications, so much so that I think it would be really easy to omit them from our discussion. They're so crucial to who Cass is as a character. The first thing is that when he meets Anna, she goes, if I didn't know any better, I would say the Winchesters don't trust me. And Cass replies, they do. I don't. I wouldn't let them come. And this has such like a we are not the same kind of energy. Like basically, I feel like Cass is telling Anna that like he doesn't care that she's in Dean's DMs, but that Dean comes home to him every night, you know, like it feels territorial to me. Yeah, like I love how this conversation has like two sides to it. There's the I want to kill Sam because that's how I'm going to save the day. And then but I'm still referring to both of the brothers because Dean is still very important to me and I want you to be aware of that. And while Cass might refer to keeping her away from them, I think he means it very differently for both of them. Like He isn't just like, I'm going to protect these boys. It's, I won't let you kill Sam and I won't let you touch Dean. Exactly. Like, of course, there's that, like, um, unsaid difference in the way that, like, he talks about them. Yeah, it feels like sometimes they say, they use the term the Winchesters to refer to both of them, but we both know they mean Dean. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) 
The second thing I want to highlight is the follow-up to that conversation where Cass says that he doesn't trust Anna because she's out of heaven prison. And that means that the angels let her out. And he says he knows this because, and I quote, he's experienced heaven's persuasion. And again, this is really buried in the episode and the, 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 the conversation changes immediately after, but it's just going to be so important later on. Yeah, I feel like this is kind of our first like big boy Cass episode where he stops being a plot device and becomes more of his own character. Like he has time on screen where he isn't just a supporting role. He is his own character finally. I feel like we've been getting there, but this is the first time I really feel it. You know, his actions really make that more obvious this week. And it's, you know, it, it shows how much he's been missing recent episodes. Like, I feel like there's always kind of a moment in every episode up until now when Cass isn't like primarily on screen where I'm like, where is Cass? Why isn't he here? What is the reason that he's busy? I know they've given him the he's looking for God with the magic amulet, but like that always sort of felt like a we need an excuse to take him off camera because they've kind of dropped that plot completely, it feels like. And they're just hoping we don't bring it up again. But now that Cass is here, it's like weird that he's been omitted from so many scenes and moments and episodes up until now when it feels like he's going to kind of be there forever now. Oh, forever? What makes you say that? Ugh, stop it. No, I'm just curious. Like, I'm literally just asking. I'm not. <laughs> I mean, yes, I know forever minus an episode or two. I'm not sure the exact count, but it really, he is feeling like a part of it. It feels like they've gone from being a duo to a trio and like, not in the way like, you know, Ruby like would join in once in a while or be a useful side character. Cass really feels like part of the gang. Like I expect every episode to open up with like, Whatever the case is, Cass is there, even if it's not directly related to him or the mission. I mean, he is the third part of the third third of Team Free Will. Yeah, I feel that's I think what it is. I think it's like this is the first time where he feels so like. He feels I can't I can't put words on it properly. I'm having trouble like making it very clear, but he feels like a person and less of an object finally. I still find it really interesting that so much of his journey in this episode is buried in the subtext. And like, you could almost say that it's like almost omitted from the text. It, you know what? It's like, I, again, I know we, I know we, you and by extension, Rochelle, I know it lends you a hand here and there, pick these themes based on the episodes that you have some pre-knowledge of. So like going into an episode where Cass becomes more textural and we learn more about him but we also realize one things are being omitted and he himself was missing for so long in so many episodes where he could have been there feels like a really, really intelligent choice on your part. So my goodness. Thank you so much. (laughs) This episode has a lot of characters built into it. And I think it's safe to say that like Sam and Dean have similar journeys in this, uh, in this episode. So I was kind of wondering if we could talk about them both at the same time. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to do this. I feel like, there are little things we can bring up individually for them, but nothing big enough that they need their own section so we can kind of get a little more time with everybody. The big omission that they have to make throughout most of the episode is their identity. And like, that's really like the, the that's very obvious, right? Or at least like who they are to John and Mary, because they conceal their identity all the time, but 
this really feels different. Um, lying to someone about your name when you know that you're never going to see them again is not the same as like not telling your parents that you're their child. And like, I feel like that omission weighs on them very differently this week. It feels like Dean is more worried he'll scare them off while Sam is almost more afraid of them finding out, if that makes any sense. Dean's thought process is more of a, I can't let them know who I am because that will be bad for them. And Sam is more of the, I can't let them find out who I am. It'll be bad for me. Ooh, that's interesting. Unfortunately, the magic mind erasing powers at the end of this episode kind of nullify this for us as a viewer, because ultimately we see in the moment how each reacts to having to hide. But when the reveal finally does happen and we get this kind of cathartic, like we can talk about this moment. It's taken away from us. Well, I mean, the boys remember, right? True. They get to remember, but I feel like the more impactful thing would be Mary and John remembering, but obviously time travel shenanigans, we can't have that, so they have to write themselves out of a hole. I think that it's also important to mention here that this is the... Because, like, Dean has met them before in his other time-traveling episode, but Sam never did. Yeah, true. Like, I think it's very apparent, too, in this episode. Like, the way that Dean's kind of, like cooler about it like he's ready for it but i don't think anything prepares you for meeting your younger parents back to life in time travel like having done it once before so dean's at a very steep advantage here and you can see it in sam like the number of times they comment on sam just being like mute and like staring (laughs) can you blame him i personally can't like that is very understandable reaction And I like that they take the time to, like, play with that a little bit. And along those lines, I want to talk about the moment where Sam tells John that, you know, his father died before he got the chance to tell him that he forgives him and that he loves him. And I I want to acknowledge first that forgiveness is not something that anybody owes to somebody who abused them. So with that out of the way, if forgiveness is a pathway to empowerment for Sam, then I'm really glad that he's been able to express it. And to John, no less, right? And I really think that this could be or would be really cathartic if only Sam had been able to say this to the John with all of the memories of what happened after 1983 and not this John who has no clue. This is also one of those moments why like as much as I like time travel plots done well, this is why I hate them because you get these kind of moments that like could be more impactful but are like. I don't know, I feel like it's taking something away from it because it's being done this way. It's like done more for the viewer and less for the characters. I do feel it's important to recognize that forgiveness is something that a lot that you can do for yourself. Like your forgiving of someone isn't necessarily for the person, but for yourself. And being able to say it out loud, even if it's not to the person who you are forgiving, can really like take a load off your chest. It can really be like freeing. I think part of Sam was only able to forgive John for himself after seeing a John prior to the John he knew. Yeah, right. Like there's some level of, you know, he's only known John for so long. And even the stories of John he heard growing up all became tainted by seeing the true John that to then go back and see John being a kind and good person before life turned him around made it easier for Sam to understand and forgive him as a whole. 
But that's the whole point of John, right? That he is all of those things all at once. And that just because he exhibited this behavior before doesn't take away anything that happened and that he did to Sam and Dean. Exactly. Again, I think that's the important part. You are very right. Is it's this isn't a magical get out of jail free card. Like, oh, look, he used to be a good guy and he turned bad. It's he still did terrible things. But Sam is choosing to offer him forgiveness after having met the person he once was. Sure. I don't know if I agree with you on that in the sense that I don't think that it matters to Sam that he saw the kind John or the past John. I think that Sam has been wanting to say this and like seeing John made him because the thing is like, it's easy to say, or I think it's easier to say like, Oh, you don't need to tell anybody that you forgive them, but so long as it's a choice. Right. But in Sam's case, it's not a choice. His father's dead. He has no option, but to not tell him. And so to have this opportunity to tell his dad that he forgives him, again, whether or not that's something that we would do for ourselves is irrelevant, but for Sam in that moment, it was clearly very important. It's the first thing he does when he sees him alone. And that's going to evolve over time. Like, I guarantee you, we're going to be having this discussion again. Would Sam forgive John the same way he did here? If he had gone back in time and met a John who was much closer in age to his father was when he grew up. Yes, absolutely. You you think if they went back in time 15 years to a John who was still raising the boys and being shitty and Sam resented, he would have the same conversation? Yes, I think that he would. I think that, and, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying that I agree with Sam, but I think that for this to come up, it's something that Sam has been thinking about for a very long time. Oh, I don't disagree. I, I believe that as well. But I think the reason, what tipped him over the edge is seeing a good John. And I think seeing the same John he remembers, he wouldn't react the same way. Maybe. We'll never know. Unfortunately, unless the Winchesters does a time fast forward episode. Or maybe we'll know, actually. <laughs> now that I think about it, maybe we'll know. So we need to talk about the moment where Sam and Dean are on like John and Mary's stoop and like Dean's entire demeanor changes when he hears and when he sees John, his face hardens, like he stands up straight and he goes to show that despite the fact that Dean knows that John's been dead for like four years at this point, he still carries that trauma with him. And he also knows that like the John that he had as a father and the John pre Mary's death are two separate entities kind of, because he's met pre-series John before, right? But the, that clearly doesn't matter to him because he still has that visceral reaction. And like we were saying earlier, John is John at his best and at his worst. And Dean will always be affected by the worst of him. And there's no way to take that away to omit it, even one, even for just one episode. Oh, yeah. I feel like what you just said works really well in tandem with the point about Sam's forgiveness being for himself, uh, at least from my perspective. That even when the person who you fear most isn't around, the mere presence or memory of them can haunt you to your very core. And to paraphrase a very well-known and well-renowned doctor, you can remove the cause, but not the symptom. Is that Doctor Who? 
Dr. Frankenfurter from uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, damn it. <laughs> so <laughs> close. <laughs> Sorry. Not, not British. Does come from other planets. <laughs> close enough. Like, sort of same. <laughs> same, it's all same, very but different. <laughs> oh, man. That'd be a crossover I'd kill to see. <laughs> same. Uh, there's another throwaway line for Dean, and that's when Michael, while wearing John's meat suit, basically, tells Dean that he does what he's told because he's a good son. And Dean replies, trust me, pal, take it from someone who knows that is a dead end street. And again, here, that's another line that's not elaborated on and kind of like buried into the text. And I just find that this episode, like really makes me feral because there's so much there's so much in these little throwaway lines and there are so many of them okay i have to go on like a partial critical time rant with this for a second so like the parallels we get between like dean michael and sam lucifer are like painfully blunt but sometimes like that isn't a bad thing like sometimes you need to have those blunt moments because some people aren't watching the show the way you and I watch it and a lot of our listeners watch it where they're absorbing like every little thing. There are people who treat this like a monster of the week, like whatever show. Which it markets itself as, by the way. As much as the show has so much in the subtext and we've discussed, I think in this episode, so many things that are like not super surface level and really require conversation to get to. Some are incredibly blunt and blatant and obvious once you think and talk about them. But once in a while, the show has to do this, like, let me beat you over the head with this very obvious clue so you find the clue I'm beating you with. Some people watched it, like, just as a monster of the week every, you know, every week kind of show. And, like, this is a 22-ish episode season, 24, I can't remember. And there's so many things that are, like, kept and dropped and then picked back up again, you know? Like, I think that they have to be very blunt about the things that they want. Like, again, it's it's frustrating, but I understand where it comes from. It just feels very ham-fisted sometimes. I feel, I, you know, I know that it bothers you, but to me, it's just like, it's just a, a staple of, of network TV of, at that time. So it doesn't bother me. It's what I expect of the genre. I'm, I, I feel like I'm probably rose-tinted glasses here, looking back at, like, Buffy as the best example. And, like, I, I can't really think of times it did it, but I'm sure it did. Anyway, I did a really deep dive into Buffy not that long ago, and it's just like just rewatching and rewatching the series, and like there are moments where like Dawn is foreshadowed like way early. Really? Oh man, I I, I need to do a rewatch that show properly. And like, do we want to talk about John and Mary for a second? I think we 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 they, they deserve it for once. Of course, they deserve it for once. I honestly think that the biggest omission for John and Mary sort of comes back to like my critique of Mary in 403 in the beginning. And that is her choice to not tell John about the supernatural. And I'm, I'm still big mad at her for that. Because that choice doesn't only affect her, it affects John. And I, I really think that John had a right to know about this. At the very least, before he married her and had children with her, so that he could decide if that's really what something that he wanted to get involved with. And we sort of see that in this episode when John says, you know, y'all might have treated me like a fool, but I'm not useless. Yeah, I understand the goal of Mary here, that it was just like, 
you know, I don't want to get him involved, but like, that's not going to work. Like how many times are they going to get attacked or come across something and just get lucky that for some reason, John's memory or even her own get wiped. Like I refuse to believe nothing happens to them in the universe up until the fire that takes Mary from them. Like I can only imagine the bullshit she has fed John about like this strange thing that happened. Uh, you know, wh- I, what? That must have been the wind. That wasn't a ghost in our house. What? No. Like that's still to me my biggest contention point with Mary as a character. I feel like it's also important to acknowledge, like a spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen the Winchesters. Uh, you know, like um, go ahead, like a couple minutes. Anyway, this happens in the first episode, apparently. But, like, I really want to acknowledge that in the Winchesters, John does know about the supernatural. My approach to this conversation would be really, really quite different if I were to talk about the Winchesters. And I don't want to get into a conversation about the supernatural versus, like, Winchester's canon, because that's not the point. But I I really just wanted to acknowledge that and to say that in this podcast, at this point in time, we're just sticking to the story that's presented to us in Supernatural. And in that one, we basically are led to believe that Mary never told John about monsters until this particular ordeal. Yeah, I'm not going to touch the Winchesters. Like, let's leave that for future conversations like you're doing here. Like, I'm aware of that same fact. It became known to me. But I will be curious to learn whether this is a alternate timeline or whether this is some sort of like time travel shenanigans that actually did let them change in the past. I'll be curious to know what the like eventual explanation is. Same, same. I'm really excited to see how that's going to be resolved. For practical reasons for this podcast, we're really sticking to Supernatural, the TV show. And obviously there's also the fact that like Michael scrubs the memories of John and Mary and so that they won't remember the whole thing. Like that's also a really big omission. Yeah, no, let's just, I, uh, I, mm, there was like, I know, I know, I know it's a TV trope, but like, this is one of those ones that just like it bugs me. It's up there with the, everything was a dream episodes of a show. It's like, as much as I like time travel content and I've made it clear that we differ on that one. I agree with you on this one. Shall we hit to critical time? This episode was written by Sarah Gamble and Nancy Weiner and directed by Steve Boyum. I'll be honest, I expected Sarah at first because Anna was back. Right? There you go. But then Anna is killed off. If I were for a second to be a little unkind to Ms. Gamble, it would be that this is the moment that she never forgave and forgot about. The fact that Anna... Was killed off. And we'll we'll talk about that in season seven. Shall I dip into the journal for us? Oh, yes, please. The bus was late. Again. No matter how often a bus is late, I always feel just as cheated and frustrated as the last time. It's raining just a bit, and the shelter, while in rough shape, is keeping me dry, at least. My phone died ages ago. Tonight was... Tonight was a long night. I kept my mind from wandering too far by watching the streetlights and trying to make sense of their flickering, you know, timing it or seeing if they synced up with each other. Really, just some kind of distraction. That was when I caught a glimpse of someone coming towards me, their silhouette floating from street lamp to street lamp, one after the other. It was something to focus on, so I watched them. I watched them continue towards me and 
for a moment got hopeful they may join me at the bus stop and maybe even want to talk. Damn, I hadn't spoken to a person in a few days. Like I said, it's been a long couple of nights. They reached the last streetlight and stopped to look at me. I think? They waved, but seemed sort of frozen. I couldn't make out much, but I'm fairly sure I didn't know them. At least, I don't think I did? I did the polite thing and I waved back. They lowered their hood to reveal their face, but I couldn't really make it out. The light was too faint. They shouted at me. And though I couldn't hear it perfectly enough, it was enough. They called me by my full, proper name. A name that no one alive should know anymore. And as I stared, now trying to make them out, I got up and began walking towards them. They shouted again, repeating my name again. This time, I'm sure of what I heard. This time they appended something. A simple message. Do not get on the next bus. Trust me, wait for the one after it. I began walking towards them, shielding my face from the rain that had begun to pick up in the last couple of minutes. And like that, the streetlight went out and I arrived to find no one. I looked back and saw the bus pulling up to the stop and the driver waved me over. Oh? A little bit of mystery sometimes. That is quite mysterious. I love it. I'm glad you do. Anything you want to share with us this week? Yes, I want to make good on my promise and share a fan theory with you about John. Ooh, I'm excited. I really don't want to take credit for this because I did not come up with it. The first person that I heard talking about this was Jay on TikTok, and their handle is JayStiel. So I just want to clarify that from the get-go. You know, like I spend a lot of my time in academia and that's kind of like what we do. We quote each other when we think that other people have really good ideas and that's kind of what I'm what I'm doing here. So we've seen in Free to Be You and Me that the Archangel Raphael has kind of left his vessel in a state of, of, of pretty severe brain damage and Castiel even remarks on it and he says like, it's a thing that archangels just do. And in this episode... With Michael possessing John, the theory is that John is left with some brain damage, and that's why he shifts from being the gentle, sweet character to being, like, the John Winchester who abused his children. Basically, this is to explain, like, the shift from, like, Matt Cohen's John to Jeffrey Dean Morgan's John. And the idea is that, like, Michael specifically left things in John that made him who he needed to be for Dean to turn out who Michael needed him to be. How do you feel about that? I hate that. Like, I almost, <laughs> I, like, thought I knew where this was going to go. And then you took a, I feel like, a less sharp turn than I was expecting into one that made more sense. And I hate even more. I thought we were going to find out that, like, oh, uh, the other archangel is just, like, a bad person and does this intentionally to make sure his vessels can never be used again because he's afraid they'll someone would come after him or something like, or like they'd be used against him. And like archangels are just assholes and that's the theory. But then that like Michael is like being even more precise with how he damages the brain. Oh, I hate it. Uh, it's a tough one. I agree. Are you okay with this theory? What do you think about it? So in terms of like fitting, I think that it fits really well within the Kripke era of Supernatural. Again, like I'm trying to be like contextual with where I'm fitting this, because I know that if we were to take into account the Winchesters, I think that it would complicate this a little bit more. But again, if we're looking at the Kripke era of Supernatural, like I think it fits really well. 
I know that Michael tells Dean that he's going to leave John, quote unquote, better than new, which, yeah, there you go. Which like one, you can't really trust angels, let alone archangels. We know that they lie. And two, better than new to Michael might mean a really different thing to Dean. So like expectations weren't really set properly here. So that's kind of how I feel about where it fits. My personal preference to explain that John is John, basically, or became John, is more psychological, and it has more to do with the effects of undiagnosed and untreated post-traumatic stress disorder. And like that's the one that I will stick with the most throughout this series. But I, I just like this this theory is so popular and it like fits so nicely that I really had to bring it up because I think like. Yeah, it, it like it, it it needs to be like talked about, in my opinion. No, like I, I hate that I'm aware of it now, but I'm glad it was brought to my attention. Like it's one of those like I didn't want to have to learn this, but I guess knowing it is the better result. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to side with you on this one and kind of continue to keep John in my mind the way he always was. If anything, this might sour my view of Michael a bit more. <laughs> Let's go have a listen to what our community has to say this week. Let's go. This week, we have the second half of Lucia's message. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, do you think that Sam or Dean will say yes to the Archangels trying to possess them? for our Roadhouse patrons and coffee supporters on our Impala Talk. Hey folks, it's Lucia again. So, as I stated, I had previously shared some thoughts about how Sam is the bad guy of season four. And I mentioned his pride, and I kind of wanted to get into that a little bit. So, going back to some of the things that Marie and Drew had said about reluctance being the theme of On the Head of a Pin they had noted that basically Sam doesn't seem reluctant to do anything. And I think that's true. I think Sam's issue is that he's reluctant to listen to others and be aware of the consequences of his actions. That episode immediately follows Death Takes a Holiday. So when it starts, we're seeing Sam and Dean come back from Pamela's funeral. Sam just had an interaction with her as she's dying, where she's warning him away from the choices that he's making. That has to very clearly be on his mind in this instance. And yet, as soon as the opportunity is presented, he goes back to the same behavior that he was doing that she's warning him about. And I think we give Sam a lot of credit for wanting to do the right thing. And I think he does feel motivated to do the right thing and what he sees as right. So I don't want to take away from that. But I also think that he's seduced by the idea of being the only one who can do what is right. Being that chosen one. And the like power that comes with it. He's manipulated. He's seduced by Ruby because she gives him something that he didn't even realize that he wanted. He's always considered himself a freak. He's considered himself different. He's argued that what he wanted was normalcy, but I think what he really wanted was to be praised for who he perceives himself to be, that freak. 
he's like, hey, I'm different. I can't change that about myself. And she's like, good, don't. That is a good thing. It's good that you're different. You're the only one who can do these things. And really stokes that fire in him. It's interesting because it's very much in line with what Azazel was saying here just a couple of seasons ago. Sam, you're special. Sam, you're different. Sam, you're going to lead. Sam, you're going to be this person. But where Azazel did it, very head on, very blunt, and like presented the consequences in a way that Sam really understood, like, no, this is bad. Ruby's so much slicker about it. She just is incredibly capable of that manipulation. She knows I cannot present this head on. So she goes about it in an incredibly manipulative way and feeds that ego of, hey, yeah, you're the best. Hey, you can do this. And whispers it in his ear and builds him up to the point where he stops listening to anyone who would criticize him because he has someone there, a hype person, to praise him constantly. And he's like, no, this person is saying the things I want to hear So I'm not going to listen to someone who's telling me different. I think it really takes root in his mind, even early in the season. And then as it progresses, you know, we see it come out of him more. So in the episode with the siren, he tells Dean saying, hey, I'm a better hunter than you. I'm a better hunter without you. It's not just, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm good at this. It's I'm better than you. I'm better on my own. Like I'm the one who's capable and we also see it in On the Head of a Pin, where he insists Dean isn't strong enough, so he needs to be the one to defeat Alistair. Um, Drew stated that he felt like Sam's choice to do this was essentially choosing his powers in this situation to protect Dean and Dean's innocence. And I really love that read, and I think it's very generous, and I want so badly to believe it. But unfortunately, I look at it differently I really think that Sam is actually acting out of jealousy and, again, wounded pride in that moment. He sees himself as the one who is strong and capable and views Dean as weak. And so he's upset because the angels are choosing Dean and rejecting him. He believes he's better than Dean. And as soon as they're gone, he immediately sets out to prove it. And it just, he's always wanted to be perceived as right by others, but he doesn't seek to achieve it in a way that is righteous. He lacks humility. He's prideful. And it isn't until Lucifer is released that his ego can be checked And he's forced to endure the results of his own hubris. Kind of like Icarus flying too close to the sun and then falling. Um, I think it's important to note this about him, how his fall affects him in season five and even seasons following that. Um, You know, what it does to his psyche, to his self-perception um also how the show chooses to parallel that with dean being portrayed as the righteous man and their 
choices in how they parallel Sam, his actions in season four, and his attitudes with other characters in later seasons. Just really fascinating to me. Um, And I think not only is his storyline leading up to the very end of season four really important, but also the impact of finally being able to see the consequences of those actions, that is most critical. So those are my thoughts. I'm, um, again, still really excited to see more of what you guys are working on. Um, Can't wait to keep listening. I love how, like, in the midst of all this, Lucia, there was, like, a compliment to, like, my views of Sam and how you (laughs) wished you could perceive them that way. But I feel like so much of your view of Sam and his choice in his actions and like kind of the like mentality behind them and the result of them and his hubris are so in line with how I've been feeling with him this season looking back at him. I feel like in season four sometimes even like not that I was getting frustrated with you but I was just like oh my god Drew like how are you so supportive of Sam? (laughs) (laughs) And and whereas like we've had kind of a role reversal this season where like it feels like you're you've been so hurt by like that betrayal by realizing because at the end of the day you were you were rooting for him you know what i mean like and to see him fail like so drastically and so spectacularly i think was like really uh painful for you and so like you've you've had a hard time like forgiving him i've seen like you're starting to get around but it took a really long time <laughs> There's like two ways to look at Sam. And I think I was looking at him without the hindsight of like knowing how these actions would pay off in the end. And that ultimately he was doing the wrong thing and being manipulated and controlled and played. So I understand seeing him in those moments and being like rooting for him because it feels like, yeah, he's going against the grain and yeah, he's accepting demon powers, but like he's doing it to save the day. But like looking back, it's like, oh no, you were just being an idiot and being used and being dumb and not, you know, using the support you had and instead taking what feels like the easy route in some cases and your hubris had its price. Lucia, thank you for for this uh for the second voicemail. I I like I took some notes as I was listening to your message because I'm I'm just thinking about and we'll we'll learn this in more detail a little bit later, but Sam, it, when they were children, Sam wanted to go on the hunts with Dean and John, but John would only take Dean, right? Because John knew what he knew and he wanted Sam to stay behind and he needed Dean to be a particularly effective hunter. He took Dean with him on a hunts and it did what it did to Dean and Dean resents him for that with reason. But Sam always felt like he got left behind. And so I think that in season four to see the angels picking Dean over him probably like brings all of that back and like that, you know, second child syndrome. Like it's, I think that not to make the comparison, but it sort of feels like, you know, Dean was the heir and Sam was the spare in his mind anyway, where like he could never be to John what Dean was to John. And he wanted so desperately to be that that when Ruby started giving him the acceptance that he so desperately craved, he was seduced by it immediately. He didn't think twice about it. Dean being chosen again over him by 
something that he's always looked up to. Like he's always like, I, and again, I know like not now, but like back then when, you know, he, John was still like daddy John to little baby Sam, there was always that like, you know, oh, I want dad to love me the way he loves Dean. And clearly he doesn't because he takes Dean on these you know outings and not me. So here he is getting to live that again as the angels are like, we need the greatest person of all time to be our greatest warrior. Dean? And that's the thing. I sort of, I obviously don't want anybody to think that I'm saying that John should have taken Sam on hunts. John should not have taken Sam on hunts. He should not have taken Dean on hunts. You know what I mean? Like this is, is it's, I think I've made myself clear. I just don't want to be misunderstood in that sense. But like the way that Sam lived the situation is really clearly different from the way that Dean lived it. And this is going to come full circle this season. Thank you so much for this lovely two-part voicemail. It was super fun to listen to. And again, honestly makes me feel better about how much I'm disliking Sam this season, but I am looking forward to having him back in my good graces eventually. Do we have any reflections from this week? We better. I I honestly think that this episode makes me feel called to do things on my own terms. Like the ending of, of this episode is, is very much about like free will versus destiny and like the pressure to give into like a path that you don't necessarily feel is yours. And it's really making me reflect on my own current path, I guess. And like what the external forces are that like are pressuring me one way or another. It's just reminding me to stay cognizant of that and to try to focus on like doing my own thing in my own way. I like that. I like that we kind of landed on the same point, but through different routes, if I may. Where did you land? So for me, it's it's weird because I kind of feel like in a very negative light, the uh, example I fall on here is John, and that is people change. <laughs> Um, in this case, not for the better, and maybe Michael's to do with that, but that's a, let's leave that alone. <laughs> that really stuck with you, didn't it? Uh, unfortunately. <laughs> fan theories do that a lot. Yeah, we're pretty brilliant, all of us together. As part of that, uh, to tie into my point in a really bad segue, you know, being a part of this podcast with you and studying this the way we have, and I mean, everything that's changed in these last few years change is normal change happens people change and i have changed i am changing and i will change and it's just to kind of be aware that change is happening and to always kind of look for the good in those changes that's really interesting i love it yeah i kind of feel like we're gonna land on the same like following our own path and like staying positive if i may just through through different different lenses I love that. Thank you so much, Drew. Thank you. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Marie Vigoureux and myself, Drew Shulman. Thanks to our Bunker patrons, Katira and Elle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Lucia for their message. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Hive, TikTok, and YouTube using at CarryingWayward, and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios, or go directly to CarryingWayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. Can you say that again? I'm sorry. I was looking at Kishet because she was being an absolute gremlin. <laughs> I have no clue what you just said. <laughs> <laughs>
It's okay. I'll accept the gremlins. <laughs> She's so funny. Okay, Oy. go. I'm, I'm focused. 